This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Continuing the reading, chapter, seven, or chapter 8, uh, starting at the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what, is, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells within you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus... Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Scripture readers always point out when they get to scripture verses or passages with lots of names, people or places, but the the reading that Laura just read to us, those are actually the most difficult scripture readings to read. When it's, I do not do what I want to do, and I and uh, thank you so much. Well, well read, and a very important uh, section of scripture. Pretty much guarantee that you've had conversations within the last uh, day, week, month, definitely month, where some kind of topic has has been the point of conversation, and the question you could ask this question: What is the problem? And either you or someone else that you've been spe- that speaking with has had no hesitation at all in saying, "Well, I know what the problem is with whatever it might be." This is how we talk to one another. As long as we don't actually have to solve the problem, we know exactly what would solve the problem. And this is the way of the world. You can think about problems in politics, or problems with the economy, or education. Just listen to what's happening around us in our world. Or you listen to the news from Baltimore, the situation in the United States between, uh, well, between, even, even as I say it, it's, it characterizes it. 
but involving police and, and African-American, particularly young men. Well, here's the problem. Here's what we need to do. You know it, don't you, from such a distance. Or about uh, Vancouver traffic. Why does it take so long on so many days to get to the Second Narrows Bridge? You know why, and you're ready to tell me. They're building too many things down there. They're like, you know, whatever it is. Or you say, well, that's not the problem. The problem is we're too dependent on our cars. Every one of those cars, or most of them have one person in them. That's the problem. We don't need to build bigger roads. We need to change the way we live. Or the Vancouver Canucks. Does anybody know the problem with them? And if you tell me it's the Sedines, we will get in an argument. They are not the problem, but anyway. But not, I mean, I've heard people say things that will use that good, safe example, and they are so utterly convinced that that's the problem. Or housing prices in Vancouver, where the, the average income is actually lower in Vancouver than in most places in Canada. Did you know that? Certainly lower than Calgary, Toronto. But try and find a place to buy or rent. And then you can tell me why it is that way. Well, it's too much foreign money. Is that it? Is that it? That you just know that's the problem. But we speak like that. If we could just solve the problem and if people would just listen to us, then everything would be okay. We have been working through this series on the Christian gospel in the book of Romans, Life in Jesus Christ. The Christian contention is this. In Jesus, God has turned towards humanity, not turned away. This is why it's called gospel, good news. God has not willed to be God without us. God has not willed to be God without us. And it is in Jesus Christ that we can know and have life to the full. In Jesus Christ, we can turn to God and then live in this world, not by our achievement or our status or our financial security or the accolades that come to family or loved ones or whatever it might be. Living in this world not by our achievement and not living in this world either by uh, a celebration of self which can become sin. But living in this world as we turn to God in Christ Jesus, living in the grace of God. So we move now in this understanding of the gospel to Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, well-known passages of Scripture. The, the uh, passages that Laura read for us are very theological in nature. Much of Romans is. But you had some of the things in there that you may have memorized when you were a kid, depending on where you grew up or how you, know, you did that in Sunday school. You should be memorizing Scripture as adults, by the way. When you get to a passage that says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you, and then you say to me, I'm really struggling in my life. and I, have, I wish you memorized that verse. It would make a difference in your life. So you get this soaring rhetoric from Paul, the writer of this book, in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 8, we'll get to that famous, famous passage of Scripture, right? That says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can say that over the earthquake. I am convinced that neither death nor life, and he goes through a big list, right? 
angels, demons, principalities, powers, anything. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a better way of saying what so many people long to hear. We say it in pretense, but Scripture says it in truth. This is the the gospel way of saying, listen, everything will be okay. Soaring rhetoric. In chapter 8, 7 and 8, we'll outline further the gospel, but more than that, the implications of the gospel. And Paul is going to use one framework to, to kind of hang all this theology on so that we can understand it. He's going to say, I know I often do this up here, but he's going to say, there is life in the flesh. So this is life of sin and religion. Life in the flesh. And there is, the problem is, I'm going to put these like here. But it should be, there is life in the flesh, and then i got to kind of hop up on top of the roof and point up over there. And there is life in the Spirit, and you're going to live in one of the two ways. I want to, I want you to, I mean, I guess, I hope that this is the way that I want you to know things on Sunday mornings when I come up here or others come up here and preach. Uh, If I don't want you to know things, there's not a lot of point of of being up here, right? Just filling space or whatever. But often, I I become aware that when you see true faith, when the Holy Spirit is truly present, you can have an interaction with one person and it it moves beyond um, a sense of, of just the power of a crowd or whatever it might be. And as I say that, I what I'm feeling is that I could take each of you, and I know most of you or all of you here, aside and, and, and say this thing that I want you to hear. And it might sound a bit awkward in its expression. I'll explain it in the sermon. But I want you to know that you in this life are summoned. Summoned to life in the Spirit. I could use the word invited. That's nicer. Because summons has the thing of a court thing. It's not a negative thing. But it's, it's, it's stronger than an invitation. You are summoned to life in the Spirit. I want to say it to each of you. And that's what's going to be described in particularly Romans chapter 8. Something bigger than you. This world existed before you. The world of the life of the Spirit. It will exist after you. Your earthly existence. But you are summoned into this life that is bigger. And in this life of the Spirit, Scripture will teach us that God is present and God is for us. And you can live this life right now in all the interactions that you have today. It's not just a one-day life. It's a here-and-now life. And when you know it, whether it's praying for Daniel, who's finding his way through Nepal and India over the last number of days, you can be in any situation in this world, any situation in this world, and some have been in more difficult situations, certainly, than I ever have. But you can be in any situation in this world, and when you know life in the Spirit, you know life. Verses 15 to 20 in chapter 7, what's described here? Um, We have to get through this to get to chapter 8. That's why I extended the scripture reading for this morning. 
this, what's described here appears to be a struggle. I do not do what I want. I do the thing I hate. And later, he repeats himself a few times here. I do not do the good thing that I want, but the evil thing that I do not want. That's what I keep on doing. Therefore, it's not me in a sense, or it's not it's sin within me doing this. And we could, as we describe this kind of struggle, get some amens. This is a way of describing what it means to be alive, that I'm caught in my own patterns of behavior. How come I keep getting into the same arguments with my family members? Here's the reason, because it's their fault. I mean, you you laugh because we repeat the same patterns over and over again, whether they're anger, impatience, fear, insecurity, whatever it might be. And it comes out in all of these things in our lives. That's not even counting people who are caught in patterns of addiction. But there's also just the plain stupidity in our lives. How we can treat others, our temper. What's described here is something like that struggle about being a person. What I want you to know, and this is why this sermon is a little bit theological, but Theology just means your understanding of God, and as you understand God, you'll live your life in, in, in light of that. Okay, so you say, I don't like theology, and I say, well, you, you, you're living a theology whether you admit it or not. And in this, in this portion of Scripture, there's an argument between biblical scholars, between those who interpret Scripture. What is being said here in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8? Uh, and I, the reason I really want to highlight it is, it, it's, this is personal to me as, as a pastor. This is one of the things, and if you listen to things I've said over months or years or whatever, you'd be able to identify this. But this is one of the things that matters most to me in Christian faith, is that we can turn the faith into something that it's not. And uh, the, some of the argument hinges on, on what they're talking about in this text. The majority of scholars take what is said in chapter 7, verses 15 to 20 that Laura read to us, I don't do the thing I want to do or I do the thing I don't want to do, uh, as a description of the struggle with sin in the Christian life. Does it sound like that to you? Of course it does. And that's maybe how you've been taught in evangelical circles growing up. That's how I was taught that this is kind of like, Todd, you know, I mean, you are you're a terrible sinner and you're caught in this battle. And, and so I, I went out as someone who cared deeply about my faith as a young person and I took up the battle. I'll try not to sin. I would journal about sins I'm caught in. I would, right? and, and that this life is kind of the Christian life means constantly struggling and battling with my flesh. I think there's some truth in this and you're going to see that I don't necessarily fall on one or the other sides of the argument, though what I want you to do is is see that I'm very sympathetic to to the minority view that I think has some real scriptural merit. What happens when you become, when you think, okay, that describes the Christian life, is that you can, and whole churches can do this, you can then have your mind dominated by a struggle with sin. That this is the mark of, of what it means to be a Christian. So as I relate to non-Christians in the world, or people who aren't maybe interested in the Christian faith, I see the reflections of this battle even on, right? So I had a, a beer yesterday at the, uh, Aiden's at an ultimate tournament right now. He's probably sinning because he's not here, right? Like that's, that's the struggle in the battle. That's how we 
And yesterday there was a tournament all day out at Burnaby Lakes, and a couple of the dads were like, during one of the breaks, let's go to the to the restaurant at the hockey arena that's right there, and let's have a beer. Now, if you now please hear this. In no way did I struggle with that decision. But at some point, the Christian message is you should. You may send the wrong message to the and in fact. When, some, when a couple of the guys I was sitting with, and a couple of them I didn't know very well, found out I was a minister, they made jokes about how, I, right? The reflection of this struggle is even mirrored in people who haven't been in churches in, in church in years. The minority view is this, and I think we ought to give it some merit. The minority view is, yes, this describes struggle with sin, but it describes that struggle with sin from a particular context. And the context of that, of what is described there, is what it means to live life in the flesh. What it means to live life in the flesh is that you are caught up in a constant battle, and particularly if you're interested in faith and religion, you're caught up in a constant battle then between flesh and between sin and religion. And it'll dominate your life. So it gives merit to the struggle, but it says this, the minority view. And one of my uh, profs out at Regent College was someone who, who was strong on this view, Gordon Fee, who's an expert in the New Testament, an expert in passages on the Spirit, and he would hammer home with this, and he didn't just uh, uh, lecture, he preached, and he would say, it can't possibly mean the things that we've been taught it means. Because you have to read Romans 8, which says life in the flesh is freedom. Why are you selling people torment and telling them that's what it means to be a Christian? So he was strong on the minority view, but it's still the minority view. So there's argument on what the problem is or what the solution is, but there's agreement to some degree on what the problem is. The problem is that we, I'll get there, the problem is that we sin. The problem is that we do wrong, that we hurt ourselves and we hurt others and we do what is not good. We do evil. We don't do the good we ought to do. I, I know that in this world... Um, a lot of people don't buy that. They, they think, well, we're not sinners. I just, I can't. I mean, I talked to somebody for 10 minutes, and you can tend to demolish that. But both of these sides, the majority view and the minority view, will agree on the problem. The problem is sin. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, put it this way. You may have heard this famous quote. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states like nations or countries, not between classes nor between political parties. The line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. So as you say, I know what the problem is with such and such, every time that's said, the reflection should be that we all to some degree are the problem in the world because the problem is sin. Now, on the majority view of this text, the, the, what, what is communicated sometimes inadvertently is Accept that your life will be marked by this terrible struggle, this battle. And you're going to live it out every day. And if you have kids, now you really got to be afraid. Especially when they're not. I mean, Andrew and Denise are here. It's so easy for you guys with Nathan now because he just does baby things. But pretty soon he's going to choose bad things. And people at church are going to be like, you know. It's hard enough when it's your own behavior, but it, when it's somebody else's, if, if, you, if this is your view, then you're caught up in this. Here's what we need to do then. We need to fight. We need to battle. The solution in the minority view to the problem of sin, it doesn't say we aren't to battle with sin. It's not, it's not saying that that's not a reality, that I, I turn away from God and to myself all the time. 
But it's saying the solution to that is to understand the life that we have in the Holy Spirit. Be open to that, and then you will begin to change your life. And this is a maturity thing, because the child you teach, don't put your hand on that hot stove. It's no, right? It's behavior. But it's the adult who begins to see and understand things. When you understand life in the Spirit, you don't have to be treated like a child anymore. I see both arguments, but I I will say that my own reflection is that I do not believe, nothing in me believes this, many of you would know this from knowing me, that the Christian life as God intended it is to be a life of misery. Read the scriptures. I don't mean there won't be suffering. I don't mean there won't be pain. So if you think I'm scared of this thing might happen to, I, I don't know. Bad things do happen. Christians get sick remarkably, guess what? At the exact same rate that non-Christians get sick. But what I'm saying is that this life, I do not believe this life is to be a life of misery where I'm walking around dominated with a fear that at some point I might be doing the wrong thing. And by the way, I will say, that is not what Christian witness is. To be better than the other ones. Christian witness is to witness to the living Christ in our midst right now today. It's so much more and bigger. Remember that in our world today, there is no limit at all on knowledge. I want to find out right now who won the 1962 World Series. James, start. No, not from your head, from your phone. (laughs) But you know from your head. Okay, don't tell me from your head. But you know? That's amazing. Well, somebody's going to check it. Who is it? believe it was the New York Yankees, but somebody has a phone here and they can find out for us right now who won the 1962 World Series. It used to be that people like James would impress you. <laughs> but now times have changed. <laughs> yes, Anne is still impressed, just in different ways now. But the... But because you could... Because somebody... Wow, that guy really knows sports. Now... You don't need to have that person with you because you can look it up and before I'm finished the illustration, you can say it was so-and-so. It was a French philosopher hundreds of years ago, Montaigne, put it this way. And here's the difference in how you're going to live your life in fullness of life, struggle with flesh, whatever it might be. What is this faith supposed to be? What is life supposed to be? What you need for that life is not knowledge. You need wisdom. Our world, where do you go for wisdom now? It's all knowledge, knowledge, how to be this, how to get this credit. Is it the Yankees? Oh, yeah, but you said Yankees. Chances are it's Yankees. Anyway, I still say. Um, the, sorry, well done. The, uh, our world is, is expert at offering you knowledge on how to be good at this thing or that thing or this skill or whatever it might be. There are very few places where you're taught wisdom. Wisdom is taught in relationships. Wisdom is taught in Christian understanding from being open to the presence of God. Montaigne, here's a quote on the screen for you. Put it this way. Many, many years ago, he said, we can be knowledgeable. This is before the internet he said this. We can be knowledgeable with other people's knowledge, but we cannot be wise with other people's wisdom. To move in this life, you need to to be wise. To get to the heart of what we're talking about in this battle, you need wisdom, not knowledge. 
well, you need knowledge to a degree, but it's easy to get. So rather than saying, here's where I stand on the majority-minority view, I want to tell you what solutions to this struggle will not work. We know what doesn't work. Um, And here it is. Firstly, what will not work in this life in terms of how am I going to reach a place of... It's hard to describe what it is. It's more than happiness, fulfillment, peace, contentment, fruitfulness. What will not work is self and sin. Self is the idea that if you just follow your heart and your desires and your interests and your appetites, you will find happiness and peace. That makes me sick. Here's why it makes me sick. It doesn't make me sick getting angry at the people who say it. It makes me sick because I know I can't find peace if I just follow my heart. Because I'm old enough now that I know myself. But it's still being sold. Somehow the answers are, you ready for this? I can look at each one of you and say this. The answers are within you. What? I mean, in some ways, okay, Christ lives in your heart of faith. But in a way, living for self is a denial of the reality of sin. You live for yourself, and this is congratulated as right. Something is right because you've chosen it. Something is good because you like it. And as I've said before, now we have our TVs that actually tell us about our, our interests. You watch this movie. You might like this one. Everything is by your likes now. So here's a few celebrities that I'm not going to name because I honestly have no interest in knocking people down. But this is the kind of thing that people say. One is a celebrity and two are like um, self-help kind of uh, popular voices. Honor your character and your intellect and, yes, your soul by listening to its clean, clear voice. It's beautiful. I just don't know what it means. Or, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean, some of, sometimes we can say things like this and I don't mean to, to mock you if you have. I'm just trying to teach the, ex- the expression, be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Oh, Or, this one is, follow your own truth expressed consistently by you. People are paid money to say things like that. Let me tell you a liberating truth. You know that I'm not saying this is condemning, but the liberating truth is this. You do not have all the answers. You cannot solve the problems of your heart. You will not find peace by being true to yourself and following your own truth. But I'm telling you that this is liberating. It's not condemning. Self and sin doesn't work. There are very many things about which you are wrong. There's quite a few that I'm wrong about too. Probably more than you. I'm not supposing to tell you what you're wrong about. I'm just saying that there are many things about which you're wrong. This is life in the flesh. When you think, well, I kind of have it together. And even in a room with this many people in it, like, really, when I look around, I I get it. That's self. Now I understand that there has been a necessary reaction in our culture over 50, 100 more years 
to a, rea- a reaction to voices of religion and control. Religion can be terribly ignorant and hate- hateful, not accepting difference. This is the dominating view that it's always this battle. So it's not just a battle in our own hearts, it's that we have, what am I going to make of that guy or that person? So religion has propagated ways of looking at the world that can be racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever it might be, right? Because we think we've got to take this grid and go, nope, nope, outside, outside the lines. I'm not commenting on what's right or wrong. I'm saying that when we, when we think that's what we're supposed to lead with, we get into lots of trouble. So the necessary reaction to that is to kind of throw that all away and say, I don't want to live in that fear and power and control. But what too often takes it over is a gospel of self-trust, which is no gospel at all. And in fact, what Romans will do is show how these two solutions, whether it's self and sin or religion, are simply sides of a coin. You can live for self or you can live for religion. Basically say, well, I can't trust myself and there's all kinds of bad things in the world and most other people are bad too or all other people are bad too. So I'm going to take religion and I'm going to dump it over this thing and try to fix the problem. That's life of the flesh, that whole thing right there. And Paul says, neither one works. Some of you have spent your life committed to the religion enterprise. In any church, that's always the case. And a little bit upset at people who've walked away from it. Neither one works. One takes a congratulatory view. Boy, you're, you know what? You are, you are wonderful. You are the best. And everybody is the best, but you are the best. And it's just congratulating what you desire, congratulating your views. One side of that is the congratulatory view. The other one is the tragic view that just shakes its head at the world all the time. Life in the flesh and neither one works. Religion, I've got some examples here, but time is past, so uh, I won't give them. I'll, I'll use it in about people who have battled with sin through the years. There's incredible examples in Christian history. Religion has always been willing to offer an alternative to self and sin. But when the alternative is religion, fear, control, power, and judgment, when your religious life or life of faith becomes taken up by things like taking stances on issues, that's a sure sign that you think religion is going to solve the problems of the world. I simply ask myself, when do I see Jesus Christ in the gospel taking stances in the way that we think of it? He always is confounding people in this way. And if that's my Lord, then why do I think that's a key part of the Christian life? Well, I'll give you a hint. I don't think it is. But church culture sure can. This way of life makes sense if you think that we have to preserve the truth on behalf of Jesus. But remember the quote that we had from a couple of weeks ago. If the gospel is true, then any anxiety concerning its victory is unnecessary. As we move from chapter 7 into chapter 8, the question will be, it's expressed right in the text, who will deliver me from this struggle? In chapter 8, you are not condemned to this life, but you can have, in beautiful description, life in the Spirit. You can be free it doesn't mean you won't sin. It, it, it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you've dealt with all the battles of the flesh, but you're free from that life of like shaking your head at the world. The text says it. If Christ is in you, you live in the Spirit. 
not simply in the flesh. So Romans 8 contrasts life in the spirit with life in the flesh. Life in the flesh is always characterized by this battle. But in life in the spirit, and I said at the beginning and now as we move to the end, in life in the spirit, you are summoned. And I know when I speak with any one of you and the Holy Spirit is present because it's sweet. And it's something different than this that we've described. As one band put it, they're probably quoting somebody else. I'm telling you, the life of the Spirit is something that you go to the same places. You, you, um, like you live your life like you may be living it now. It's a normal life. But everything has changed because you know the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lend me your eyes. I can change what you see. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, as we move to communion. This is what we're doing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not on a stance. It's not on sin. It's on our Savior. I think that every one of us here is a wretched sinner. I'm always intrigued that I always say that, and I just think everybody that's automatically believes that. But I sometimes get people, I don't know that we're all wretched sinners. I, we're, all, we're all wretched sinners in and of ourselves. Self-centered, not caring enough. However, the truth after that awareness that we are sinners is not a truth that is hopeless and despairing. Because though I am a sinner, God has not turned away from me. That's what's being taught here. He has turned towards us. It's why, and I try to be careful not to go in other churches or whatever. We're, we're in this together. People of, of this faith. But it's why I really struggle with and have no place for what I, echoing theologians from the past, I have no place for what's called anxious Christianity. I, I'm not saying I condemn you if that's what you're battling with. I'm saying I have no place for anxious Christianity being presented from a pulpit. Sending people out into so you guys were called into a life of the Spirit. Too often what we produce in people instead is an anxious self-consciousness. And worse than that, worse than that, we take this anxious self-consciousness and transfer it onto the understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we view Him, as if this is how He relates to the world. It's not. He is free. He has the victory. And if the Son, this is from John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, I wish I didn't have to say the rest. Many of you just said it. You all should honestly be able to say it. If the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Now. Go live this life of faith in the midst of the realities of this world and your own sin, knowing that you fix your eyes not on your sin and not on your struggle, but on your Savior. Let me pray and we'll receive the communion. Jesus took bread and he broke it.